You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. We left off last time where basically had broken away from Ron as my guru to the new guru who is this kind of ne'er-do-well. I don't know if you remember, but he's like working at the Happy Store and has Joni Mitchell on his Walkman. He's the guy that knocked over the girls on the oh, right, Sabato right, show. right, yes, yes. So new guru, new era. I didn't really start doing drugs until I was a junior in high school, so... The second half of high school just started to blur out completely. Like, I would get to school at, like, 8 in the morning and just try to go out on the first break to go to my car because I had a Tokemaster 18-inch bong and, uh, and, like, fifths of gin and shit. So in that climate, it was sort of the slide down into darkness. to play outside and your body worked perfectly and you would run outside you wouldn't complain about the humidity you wouldn't complain about the heat you didn't even think of that you just wanted to go outside see your friends and just fucking live and the sun and the feeling of your skin it was a sense of like a certain sense of healthiness does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. You you can kind of remember that feeling? Yeah, a little bit. I remember as I started to take drugs, I could I could feel that feeling still. And then I remember on the other side, only a few years later, I remember feeling that go away. That whole feeling of like feeling clean. I felt like I had been dropped off at the end of the dead-end road and like the world was a hard uncomfortable place and you look at the a sunset and you're like uh what's that you know is that real some form of depersonalization started to happen as i took acid every week you know which i think is probably pretty inevitable if you're not really keeping track of yourself and you're just hurling yourself into the abyss i was watching this new guru the way he took drugs and i was just like well this is my path this is just the way it goes my idol is sid barrett yeah sid barrett not the best role model i remember walking down the hall in high school and just thinking i'm in this pressure cooker of 
tension and judgment and jealousy and just going to school, you know, when you're freshman year of high school is pretty difficult. Just operating with the fear of judgment was difficult. So I remember thinking in this one moment, like, well, everybody's in the rat race. Like, everybody's working so fucking hard to impress each other or themselves or transform into this impossibly cool entity. You know, what is it that I want out of this rat race? And I remember thinking, like, the ultimate solution to the rat race is winning the race to intelligence. If everybody else spends all their time trying to buy the right clothes and trying to buy the right records and trying to say the right things and trying to win the right girl or whatever, then I can beat them all. I can get around all of it if I improve my mind. The real prize in the end will be if I'm smarter. So if I, if I refine my brain... I can do all this other stuff too. Like I, everything else will come from it. So I, I remember that at the exact moment. And so by the time I see this guru, who's just this guy that did a flip off the stage, I'm already just sure of my gut. You know, I'm just following my gut. And so we start hanging out and playing a little bit of music together. And I start to realize that I'm in the presence of what I felt like was like one of the greatest geniuses of my time. Like, like I could look at him and I could listen to him talk and just being around him. I was like so enamored with his value system and his basic atmosphere that I started looking at my idols who were on records and shit. And I just started thinking, this guy is smarter. This guy is crazier. He's wilder and more imaginative. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't need anything else. Like, you know, I just follow this guy. And as I started to kind of, like, try to give him my undivided attention, I started to notice him pulling away at the same time. I could tell it was difficult. You never, ever knew what this guy was going to say about anything. You could not fathom speaking for him. I'm sure at the time I identified it as, like, supreme independence. But I don't even know if that's what it was. It was something weirder and darker. So as we became closer and closer, we really depended on each other and like wanted to talk to each other about what was going on every day. And then all of a sudden he tells me he's got to move away. He's got to go back to Boston. It must have been that he got his girlfriend pregnant. He just told me he's like he was leaving town he was leaving Chapel Hill. He was going back to Boston. And it just happened. And I remember, like, trying to hug him on his front porch, you know, and him just not even really being into goodbyes and shit. He's just gone. And uh, so I have recordings of myself literally sobbing, just talking about him. 
he's gone, you know, he's, he left. And I just, that's how, that's how important it was to me. And so, so he leaves and, and I, I begin to hear that he's like kind of playing with his band and I'm so jealous. He's playing shows with basically people like Sebado. In my mind's eye, I'm picturing that he's like bigger than Bowie. You know, in my mind's eye, I'm picturing that he's just living this life. I would drop everything just to play music. That's all I wanted to do. So at some point, I would stop at nothing to get it. I have no idea how many people were necessarily at the shows, but he had an audience. He had four seven inches. The fourth one comes out. It's named after me. And it's like this rambling story about how he stole the heroin that I had bought with my grandma's money. It was sitting in my cassette case that I carried around that had all my my paraphernalia in it. It's an incredible song, and I'm on a record. You know, my name is on a record, and I'm just blown away that this even exists. It's like the highest compliment any person in the world could possibly have paid to me, and it's by my ultimate idol, you know? So I was just totally confused with with happiness, you know? And uh, at some point, I tell my mom, like, he means too much to me. I have to go visit him. So... Somehow my grandma and my mom buy me a plane ticket and pay for me to go move in with them for a few months. And that begins a whole nother chapter. Basically, once he left, he left a void. It's almost like I started to become him. Like my friends had to watch as I kind of morphed into the shape I pictured him in. Like, you know, things that you would read in Junkie from William Burroughs or something. I I started to see that whole life laid out for me. I was like, this is just what an artist does, is destroy themselves. By the time I get up there, I didn't anticipate that he was smoking crack, doing heroin, and taking acid in the same day at work as a valet in a fucking garage just because he was bored. And he wanted to pass the time. So, so I mean, he's like a 20-year-old, and he's a master of the hardest drugs in the world and does them at work in front of his bosses, and he operates completely fine. I mean, he's, he's a genius. He really is able to balance in this insanely precarious paradigm very much like a William Burroughs or something. He's just, he can see right through it, and he's, he's operating on a high level. I literally get off the plane and I've got LSD like hidden down in my underwear taped to my legs. And I get off the plane and we go out of the baggage door and he takes me to the first alley on the right and he's like, okay, let's, let's get, get it out. I'm like, uh, now? Like we have to, why would we dose up right now? So for the next couple months, I descend into his world, and I'm just trapped in his weird torture chamber. 
I've got my four track there and I'm just trying to work. I'm already just like addicted to this idea like this is what we can do. But he just keeps pushing it away and I could never figure out why he wouldn't let us just make music. Like we'd have a flash moment where we'd make a great song and record it on these answering machine and then in the morning erased every time. Like, he just, he kept, like, blacking over it and, like, erasing everything. And as I got more confused, the experiences got even stranger. He brought home, like, a security guard from the valet place that asked if I would stand on his back and we could take Polaroids of it so he could jack off to it later for $20 or something. And they were doing it because they needed the money, you know? I just wouldn't. I just wasn't accustomed to life being that bizarre yet. You know, I was just like, I'm like still a pretty normal kid, you know. I wasn't ready for this. So basically where we leave off is that I come back to Chapel Hill pretty dejected, excited because I have this connection and excited that I've learned more now in some respect as we played some music. But I get back to Chapel Hill and I'm just, I can't visualize any sort of healthy way of life at at this juncture. So I basically slide down a muddy pit into drug abuse because I don't really understand where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do. I don't see like being in a band as something that I'm really willing to do in terms of doing the work and presenting myself and playing live it just I'm not comfortable with the idea I'm just recording every day in ways I can't really picture doing anything but going back to Boston and trying to decode the secret of his music which is lyrically and rhythmically this thing I'd never heard anywhere before so I'm just driven to like unlocking it and finding out how I can make something that's so unique that it doesn't sound like anybody else and I can't it's just impossible to erase my influences I'm just really struggling with that the paradigm of being like 17 and and feeling like you can't break through that wall of history when you know Ian McKay was 18 when he completely redefined music history in your mind so you're like I should be doing this. What's going on? I should be able to do this. I know I can do it. I have the potential. But you're beating yourself up. You're like, where's my idea?
I was thinking about the first time I smoked crack. Do you? Great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Did you ever have a a dark period where you became like a a druggy loser? Or is that now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that happened to me more recently. There's a certain um, boundarylessness to being young, the age we've been talking about. Absolutely. You know the moment when you're tripping and you can't tell the difference between where your skin begins and ends with the universe? You can't remember, like, the shape of yourself necessarily. You're just sort of there, but you're not, um, you're not really Jonah, like, that's touching the table right now. You're sort of like, you've lost sense of where the line is between you and other things. Yes. Oh, yeah, you want to talk about smoking crack. But you've, you've smoked crack? No. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I had come back to Chapel Hill in 1995, and I was pretty depressed because I'd left my best friend up in Boston, and I was living in his shadow, trying to sort of recreate our atmosphere, our little cult by myself in Chapel Hill. So I was riding this BMX bike around without my shirt on, and I was going down the railroad tracks, and I went to the one section that everybody knew was a bad neighborhood down by the railroad tracks, and just asked the first dude that I saw, can I get some crack down here? (laughs) Geography means everything in a small town. Like, the downtown strip is kind of like the center of everything psychologically and sociologically. And then as you get away from the downtown strip, the energy dissipates into the neighborhoods where you are kind of left to your own devices. Then out buried in those crevices is like the bad neighborhood. The, The place where you don't even know what goes on when you're 11, 12, but you know for some reason that's like where a destructive zone is. Right. But so, so anyway, so I ride my bike down into this kind of like, you know, part of the Wizard of Oz where like they go to an evil place or something. So I ride my bike down into it because metaphorically this practice of sort of touching the burner to get burned is like part of the hero's journey. You don't get to the sage level unless you go all the way around the psyche. Part of that cycle is the destructive period, right? So in order to explore the part of yourself that's hidden or the part of life that's hidden from you so you can shine a light on it, you have to literally go to the place that you don't want to go to. It's like kind of like braving being afraid of the dark or something, you know? You you get up and you go see what that noises in the middle of the night and you want to shine a light on it and understand it instead of hiding from it so I'm literally riding the BMX bike down into this kind of dilapidated crevice of the town get to the edge of the railroad tracks and this little old black man on a moped 
uh, with a little helmet comes like zooming out of the uh, neighborhood up the hill to the railroad tracks and just like appears kind of like a, a guide you know and I'm like can I give you some money for some crack <laughs> he's like oh yeah it's easy I'll be right back and I'm like wow I've always thought this was an impossibility in life and it's just so easy to break through this wall you're kicking down a door that is supposed to be shut for some really intense reason and you're like well I want to go see for myself and that's the educational part you're like I want to know for myself like the best Fug song 1966 is called I Want to Know it's like a beatnik proclamation that says we drink we break open our veins because we want to know like this is this is a uh, a pursuit for knowledge A lot of people have said this, you know, but of course I didn't look like a little Baudelaire. I look like a little asshole on a BMX bike, but, um, so I've got like $5. That's all I have. Maybe four. And I just give him the four singles or something. And he's like, fine, this is fine. I'll be right back. 
the funny part is like not only is it on the moped with a little helmet but he like gives me like a little bejeweled ring as collateral i didn't know why he was doing it and so i'm like standing there on the railroad tracks uh holding his ring waiting for him and he comes like puttering out of the ghetto and brings me my crack rock and I um, ride my BMX bike all the way back to my girlfriend's house and walk into her kitchen probably have my my lyric pad and I remember it being like a, a, a scientist you know I remember thinking like I'm in a lab the petri dish is me and I'm thinking what will this drug do to my writing? And I need to report on that. And I remember just smoking it and being so happy, maybe partially because it was a successful experiment and it was so easy. It didn't seem risky. (laughs) This is like such an ad for crack. (laughs) But yeah, so I smoked it and I remember like... um, jumping up and down in circles like in front of my girlfriend as she sat there and in like a lazy boy just kind of like being bemused at my enthusiasm i think the point is is that it begins in that atmosphere of trying to learn and and looking looking for an education in the blacker arts and then part of the hero's journey is there has to be an area where you lose all perspective. There has to be an area where you don't know who you are, why you're doing what you're doing. Once you identify as an outsider, if you're not relating to anyone, you're going to battle all the ideation that comes along to most people in those situations. Suicide becomes like philosophically an incredibly important thing you start to think about the freedom and the ability to kill yourself and it's not like you necessarily want to die or anything it's so much as you you start to perceive your mortality and your freedom to exist or not to exist and you you're playing with fire well that i feel like is really like the biggest taboo like if i'm seeing like a psychiatrists or something and they're like do you ever think about suicide i'm like yeah i think i think everyone thinks about it yeah Yeah, like i'm not i'm not gonna do it but it's like yeah like why is it so bad to just think about the possibility of doing something like if you're not gonna act on it you know what i mean like i everyone i'm sure every person has thought about it i think there's a huge difference between thinking about it because you're so chemically imbalanced that you don't want to exist and you're like life is a is a waking hell that's like one thing right whereas like that's the frontier you have to go to to do your research basically the the entire cliche of of the of the artist is that they're supposed to gain perspective on what their culture is going through And it's one of the oldest Western or Eastern traditions for someone to drop out of society, to go on a religious journey, to go on a exploratory journey and then come back and either try to explain what they learned or 
evaluate themselves in reference to society as it stands in their time, in their era. This is like the poet's job. The poet's job is to take a picture of their personal experience as it can relate to other people. So in taking that picture, you have to be paying attention. Well, I guess maybe I have a misconception about crack because I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know a ton about it, but I feel like... I feel like definitely like you do mushrooms, you do DMT, you have like... Like when you're done with that, you've sort of like learned something about yourself right. or you've discovered a new part of yourself or like you've made these kind of grand realizations that maybe you can come to on your own where I assumed crack was more of just sort of like turning everything off, I guess. Well, the points to some extent is that classic idea of God being in the gutter. In other words, we're talking about driving a chisel into your brain and prying it open and spilling the contents on the floor and examining it, trying to figure out who you are, why you should live, asking yourself now from day one here on out, what do I want to do and why am I doing this? And what is it worth? Whether it's drinking tea or playing chicken on the highway with other cars or skydiving. Does it matter what you do that helps you gain perspective on this question? The reason why we're talking about the cliche of the poet is because the poet at least asks himself these questions and veers off the path of the rat race, veers off the path of the working man's daily, you know, social contract. So everybody's rushing down this road to maybe find affirmation, maybe find security economically and socially. And so the, the poet's job, as I picture the, the Baudelaire or whatever, this is the person who wakes up and says, my job is to leave all these people's value systems behind. My job is to abandon everything. Obviously, that rings familiar to the Timothy Leary idea of dropping out of society. Right. When you say a poet, you know, you picture some turtleneck dude in a coffee shop. That's not somebody leaving society. But somebody has to criticize their culture. And that person has to leave behind that culture's value systems to adequately ascertain the value of that culture's assessments. Veering off the path to gain perspective on the path, it's, it's just another scientific method. This isn't a podcast about smoking crack. It's about overturning the dark areas of your neighborhood or your mind to go to the places that you previously were afraid to go to as part of a simple effort to integrate yourself. I also think there's an element of like when you go to those places having that realization like oh this is it and then like Mm -hmm. that opening so many other doors for you like well if this is like this then like what about all these other things Mm -hmm. that terrify me or I think are off limits or whatever. Exactly. It's almost like a labyrinth or something. You're entering willingly into this maze 
and you'll be lucky if you, you get out of it. Yeah. Self-destruction is the hallmark of rock and roll. Absolutely. Go back to the beginning of rock and roll, greaser culture and Link Ray, and you know, all the, all the, the, the mental imagery you have of Rebel Without a Cause. What is the purpose of rock and roll? In a way, it's leaving, leaving all the value systems that have been put in front of you, right? You're rejecting everything. Right. I think that's how it begins, though. I mean, certainly the, the Beatles were little kids who wore leather jackets because their American heroes were people like James Dean because they symbolized rebellion. Like, so, so this, is a, this is an archetypical form of rebellion. And drugs, I, I would have to say, were the quintessential agent. I mean, yeah, that was the character of those Beatles songs. You can hear the drugs speaking. LSD has not only a frequency, but a whole voice, and it speaks through people. There's a fog upon LA. And my friends have lost the way. It definitely comes back to some sort of kernel of truth. Happiness and wisdom directly come back to your own appetite for finding them. So if you're not curious about the cogs behind the curtain of life, then you're never going to look back there. To me... It's weird. As I get older, I feel like happiness becomes such an abstract concept. Whereas, like, people are like, are you happy? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I guess things are going okay. Yeah. Like, I think maybe I am, but maybe I'm not. Like, You're I- part of the war against happiness. 
I just don't know what it is. Like, I don't, I, I feel like I don't know what it is, or I'm just like, I don't know if I am half the time. Yeah. Like, it's such a hard, like, I felt like when I was younger, I'd be like, yeah, I'm happy I'm at the zoo or whatever. It totally just depends what angle you come from. I traditionally, since my religious moment in college, I'm just a happiness guy. That's the school of thought that I uh, found myself in. But I know Werner Herzog and a lot of people have come out against happiness. They're like, that's not the point of life. That's a very typical school of thought, too, to me. When I was in college, I would go over to the cafeteria for lunch and... I would meet Duncan outside, and there was a group of Hare Krishnas that stood out in front of our cafeteria trying to induct people, and they kind of hated me because I would sort of just laugh at all of their tactics. And um, they always start with a basic formula of, what are you going to do when you get sick? What are you going to do when you get old? What are you going to do when you become miserable and you have nothing? And I would just be like, I can see exactly what you're doing. I can see exactly how you are trying to prey upon fear in people and their vulnerability. But I'm a happy person. Are you happy? And they, would, they couldn't stand me because I was happy. Happiness is pretty offensive if you wave it around. Yeah. So I'd ask them if they were happy, and they, they'd always be like, oh, that's not the point. That's not the point of anything. Well, what the fuck is the point of wearing your little fucking robe and chanting and believing in an elephant god? If you're not happy, why should I be listening to you? Right. And so that I don't really, I don't really get with that school of thought that much. I completely understand where you're coming from. The question what is happiness? That's a philosopher's... I mean, that's like the the oldest question of humanity. But saying happiness isn't the point just sounds like a scheme to me. Um, a scheme coming from, you know, evangelism. And, and a certain kind of evangelism. Right. But from Werner Herzog's point of view, I can see... I can see a working man's perspective in that, that I understand. Like, he's saying looking for happiness is idiocy or something like that. You know, you've spent your life looking for happiness. Well, that makes sense. Happiness isn't about looking for happiness. Happiness is just happiness. It's not about, you know, pursuing it. It's the absence of happiness to look for it, right? Right. Happiness means, in a Taoist sense, happiness means that you are where you need to be in the flow of your life. That's all. The earth is a fucking pretty benevolent place, you know? Like, the wind blows pretty hard. That's about all that happens is bad, you know? Like, you know, it rains. Right. It gets a little cold. Your brain generally wakes up and enjoys life. It's about letting yourself do it.
bed.